When I was a child in the denominations, we sang a chorus, that's what we called them, a short song. Uh, that was Micah chapter 6, verse 8. I'm not going to sing it for you tonight or this morning. But uh, from childhood, this verse has been firmly implanted in my mind because of that. And of course, then I didn't have any clue what it meant or was talking about at all. So I want to read for our introduction to introduce our thoughts and, and take a text, if you will, Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll do a little bit of an exposition of that. Then we'll answer the question, what is biblical justice? And then we'll answer the question, what is social justice? And then we'll talk about biblical justice in the 21st century and relate it to the church. Micah chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. Micah the prophet says, Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent you before Moses, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. From Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah's text is composed to accuse the nations of Israel and Samaria or Israel, Samaria, Samaria was the capital city, and Judah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the capital, of their injustice and their criminal behavior. Micah wrote, lived, and worked during the lifetime of Isaiah, who was often considered the premier prophet of the Old Testament. He and Isaiah, at least for a time, were contemporaries under the reign of Hezekiah, and it's possible that Micah saw the horrible atrocities that Manasseh, the king of Judah, committed as he was uh, rebelling against God. The land was full of oppression. The wealthy and the powerful often took advantage of the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. What's going on in Micah's view is that the powerful of the land uh, followed hard after gain, after profit. And they plotted late into the hour, late into the night, into the wee hours of the morning, how they could gain worldly goods and steal the inheritance of the orphan making themselves richer and more powerful while oppressing the poor and the outcast. We'll come back to this in the heart of the lesson. 
in Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And I said, Hear now, O hands of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skins from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh for the cauldron? Skipping down a few verses to verse 9. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with inequity. Hear, her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, her prophets divine for mercy, and they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come to us. The litany of sins just continue to grow and compound upon each other. This is a long indictment that God has against the rich and powerful in Judah and Israel. They're the target audience. <clears throat> Rulers of the house of Israel, heads of the house of Jacob. Micah is not bashful in calling out their sins. He's not bashful in calling out the leaders who should have known better. He's bold in listing their wrongs. He says that they hate good and love evil. They abhor justice and pervert equity. They build up the land with iniquity and they judge for a bribe. Preachers are selling out for money. These are things that God has found in the land of Judah and or Jerusalem and Samaria to be guilty of. In Amos chapter 5, verse 10 through 15, uh, Amos would have been a contemporary or, or around the same time also. They hate the ones who rebukes in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from them, though you build houses of hewn stone, you shall not dwell in them. You planted the pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. By this time, we can arrive in Micah chapter 6, where we read to introduce our thoughts. The Lord God has a major complaint against His people, against the people of Israel. He says that He will contend with Israel. The Lord God also used Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos, the passage that we just read, to prosecute this contention with Israel. God's contention is initiated because of His desire for true justice. The Hebrew word translated justice in my new King James, it has in other places been uh, translated to reason, to reprove, to correct, to rebuke, to chasten, to argue, and to convince. I thought that was a pretty interesting concept. God asked the people to bring any charges that they have of unfairness or unfaithfulness against Him. And He reminds them again, as He has done, had done many times in the Psalms, of how He delivered them and how He was faithful to them. The drastic and horrific suggestions for pleasing God that they respond with in Micah 6, verses 6 and 7, are regarded as the voice of the people. Uh, this is an acknowledgement of sin. 
and, an, and a desire for means of propitiation. But it's a horrible thing that they are deriving in their mind. Their suggestions for pleasing God are indicative of the depths of wickedness that that society had sunk into. They become so involved in wickedness that they were blind to the goodness of God. But God finally replies using the voice of the prophet. And he states unequivocally, I've already shown you what is required. It's already been revealed. It's already been told. We should understand that there are things that are required to please God. These three things are required. They're principles of righteous conduct. Not mere formal worship. Not mere simple rule keeping. These things are good. Good means godly. Part of godliness. And there's three things summed up in this verse. This seems to be the linchpin of Micah's writings and, and preaching. First of all, he says to do justly. This means to cause no one hurt, to cause hurt to no one in word or in deed. This is directly contrary to the conduct that was, we've talked about previously from Micah and, and Amos. The rich and powerful and really all the people, the whole society, lay awake at night plotting how to get one over on the other fellow. How to get a bigger price or a more favorable judgment. How to write and deliver a more well-pleasing sermon. Not to please God, not to deliver the truth, but to gain worldly goods for themselves. Secondly, God says to love mercy. To love mercy. At this point, we begin to see that justice and mercy are inexorably tied together. To please God, to live godly, one must be guided by the Lord's golden rule, to love one's neighbor as oneself. And to do that, he or she will practice mercy as well as justice. Just like we see God doing in Jesus with Jesus on the hill of Calvary on the cross. And thirdly, Micah reports to us to walk humbly with your God. This involves humility. A proud and haughty spirit God will reject. To walk with God indicates a daily attitude and lifestyle of choosing His path, His way, every day. Now let's talk about the biblical definition of justice. The Word of God is <coughs> intimate with the concept of justice. The Hebrew word translated justice in our text is found 421 times in the Old Testament. That's a staggering number. Sometimes, as we mentioned earlier, translated judgment or ordinance or justice. 421 times I think God is concerned about justice. First of all, I want to tell you that justice is an attribute of God. The concept is often presented as righteousness, sometimes it's defined as absolute fairness. This is retributive. The concept of justice is scripturally retributive in that each receives what he or she deserves. Biblical justice is counterintuitive to social justice as it's defined today in that social justice is distributive. Many in our society would have us reformulate biblical justice and make it uh, distributive by giving privilege to those without privilege. They called mercy justice. And they changed the character of the Almighty 
and to change his requirements for holiness. Retributive or biblical justice was a critical component of the life of God's people in the Old Testament. The religious society of that day was expected to distribute both punitive justice and grace-filled mercy to the citizens of the world. This was administrated by the law of the land. The law of the land was the law of Moses. It was a theocracy. In the, Old in the New Testament, there was a change in the law of the land. The government of the nations are no longer a theocracy, but the people of God are still separate and apart and subject in a secondary manner to the rulers and authorities. Today, it's not the job of the church to police the land. Nor does the, is it the job of the government to win souls. It's not the place of the government to carry out biblical justice. <clears throat> as far as I know, every attempt to legislate mercy has failed. Brother Glenn talked a little bit about, about some examples of that last night. Romans chapter 13, verse 3 and 4. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. <clears throat> do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Biblical justice and social justice are very different. Biblical justice is not a means of redistributing privilege. But rather recompenses people for their deeds. In Psalm 85 and verse 10, mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. We begin to apply the concept of justice to our own lives and we realize that we're in a terrible plight. We're sinners. We've trespassed against God's law and we're guilty of sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve God's strongest judgment. This is the picture of God that we're presented with many times in many scenes in the Scriptures. <coughs> Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 tells us, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We see that God by no means clears the guilty. This is balanced with God who is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. So David explained mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have, have kissed. How is this all accomplished in the New Testament age? How does this translate to reality for us in 2021 rather than Obscure, philosophical, or doctrinal thought? Take Romans 3, verse 23 through 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation through His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. 
For He made Him who knew no sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for, the, for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. This is the good news. This is the Gospel. This is the heart of the biblical redemption story. God's justice and mercy met on the cross of Christ. The cross is God's solution for dealing with the evil and injustice in the world, including and especially our sin. Stories redound throughout history about a heart to forgive some horrible sin. I suppose no epoch of time presents more stories than that of the concentration camps operated by Nazi Germany in World War II or in that era. Consider the story of Corrie ten Boom. We're familiar with her name. Perhaps we've read her works and things like that. She survived one of these camps. She witnessed her sister raped and beaten and eventually murdered. Years later, after she was rescued and was traveling around the world uh, giving lectures, she was talking in one place, some place in Europe, about the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God towards sin. And as she talked in the audience, there was a man that she recognized from the concentration camps. He was one of the guards that had brutalized her sister. And the thing that she dreaded happened as she, after she concluded her speech. He strode down the aisle and offered her her hand. Began to tell her how he came to Christ and asked her to forgive him. She testifies that it was probably the hardest thing that she ever did in her life. But she said, because of Christ, who took not only this terrible man's sin, but also her own sin, she felt compelled to honor his request. This is an extreme case. But it makes the point that justice is demanded for our sins, and it cannot be paid by our own persons. Only by one who is greater, Jesus Christ. Biblical justice was poured out on the innocent Son of God. A man who lived in perfect harmony with his Father's will. A man who never once committed a sin was killed instead of countless others who have sinned, some of us in the most egregious of ways. But biblical justice has a practical and a social aspect for us too. Biblical justice appears to require honest trade. This doesn't counsel trade for profit. Go back to Micah chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. I said we'd get to it. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. God had a controversy with those who devised iniquity, who covet fields and take them by violence. The rich and powerful of the land had become corrupt. Their greed had, had driven them to extreme corruption. They lusted for things that they had no right to take, so they lay awake at night plotting how they could take those things that they had no right to. The story of Ahab and Jezebel taking Naboth's vineyard is a prime example of that. The seizure of Naboth's vineyard was built on a lie that was formulated by the rich and powerful. 
I want to go through a list of verses and instructions from the scriptures, both testaments, for us on how to act with justice from a biblical standpoint. The concept of biblical justice is much more than a sermon. It needs to be part of our regular conversation, part of our everyday life. I think that often we as Christians forget some of these points and we need to remember them. We need to preach on them. We need to put them into practice. James chapter 1, verse 27 tells us to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Exodus 22, verse 21 through 24, not to wrong a sojourner or oppress him, not to mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 27, verse 19, Cursed be anyone who perverts the sojourner, the fatherless, and widow. James 2, verse 14 through, 20, through 17. To give the things that are needed for the body. Psalms 82, verse 3. Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Hebrews 13, verse 1 through 25, the whole chapter. Show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are mistreated. Honor marriage. Don't love money. Be content with what you have. James 2, verse 1 through 26. Again, the whole chapter. Show no partiality, basically. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. Provide for your relatives, especially the members of your own house. Zechariah 7, verse 9 and 10. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy. Do not oppress widows, orphans, sojourners, the poor. Do not devise evil in your heart against your brethren. Matthew chapter 6. Do not practice your righteousness before others. Give to the needy without public notice. Pray in secret. Deuteronomy 14, 28-29. Feed those who do not have. Ezekiel 16, verse 29. God brought, we see that God brought judgment on people of Sodom in part. I stress this, in part. Because of her pride, excess food, and prosperity and failure to add to aid the poor and the needy. Proverbs 23, verse 10. Do not move the ancient inheritance or steal from the orphans. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. This is a quote. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. 1 John 3, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. Leave some of your harvest to the honorable of the poor and the sojourner. Think of Boaz who did that for Ruth and Naomi. Acts 20, verse 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Matthew 25, verse 36, the Lord says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 5 through 7, again, quote, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly ex execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood, 
in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own heart, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Proverbs 22, 16. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Proverbs 21, verse 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. I believe that this is not an exhaustive list. But it is fairly comprehensive of things that we ought to be doing individually. I don't think for a moment that the scriptures, uh, that all the scriptures regarding how the orphan and the widow are to be cared for have to do with congregations caring for them. I believe that most often this is an individual matter, perhaps involving a family, rarely involving a congregation. There are very specific guidelines on how a congregation cares for its widows and orphans. I understand that most of these passages that I just read are quoted, are referred to to have our, to do with our individual actions regarding the poor and the widow and the orphan. It may be that there are widows in our lives who cannot be taken in by the congregation but still need our help. A yard load, a tree trimmed, fence painted, so forth. We may not adopt a, a child for any number of reasons but we can bring a troubled child into our home with us for a few days or a few weeks. We may have a problem with the bum on the street taking money that we give them that they're begging for to go buy alcohol, but we can spend 10 minutes talking with them and encouraging them. We can go out of our way to assist them, if nothing else, give them an ear and a heart to talk to. Think of the ex-soldier with PTSD who can't hold a job because of the troubles that he's had. He doesn't need our judgment. He or she needs our time. They may not open our hearts to us, but spending 5 or 10 or 15 minutes with them a couple of times a week may prevent them from committing suicide. may bring such joy that they realize that people actually do care. I have to ask this question, and we can only answer it individually, but I must ask it. Keep in mind that we will be judged along these lines. Do we need to repent for acts of injustice? Have we neglected the poor? Have we disregarded the widow? Have we abandoned the orphan? Do we take advantage and cheat our fellow man? I'm not talking about charging fair market price for goods. I'm not talking about making a profit in business. I'm talking about price gouging and taking unfair advantage, especially of the needy. I hope you're beginning to see that biblical justice does have a social aspect. I hope that soon you'll see that social justice does not have an accurate biblical aspect as social justice is defined in our society today. I hope you're entertaining the idea that there, is, that there may be repentance that needs to happen. Understand that real repentance involves an individual change. If we're guilty of racism, for instance, we must change as individuals. The government can't change us. The church can't change us. We change as individuals. Then entities change along with us. Social justice advocates have it backwards. They have the cart before the horse. The individuals, it is individuals who affect organizations, who affect the government or the workplace, not the other way around. You can't legislate true justice. 
Social justice is an ideological worldview that is rooted, as we learned last night, in cultural Marxism. It is the dominant view being taught in our universities, even down into our elementary schools. Social justice is a new ideology, a subgroup of critical theory, obsessed with power and oppression and victimization. In a social justice worldview, the world is divided between evil oppressors and innocent victims within a zero-sum struggle. Social justice advocates use an end justifies the means ideology. It's fixated on class, race, gender, and sexual orientation, where individuals are irrelevant representations of their class. Social justice is hostile toward Christianity, especially its beliefs about the family and sexuality. Social justice displays hatred toward the natural family, especially regarding the authority of the husband or father in the home. And it's fixated on redistributing wealth and power by a larger and larger government. Social justice, sometimes called ideological social justice, varies on almost every word and detail from biblical justice. One of social justice leading thinkers probably proclaims that we, human beings, are not obliged to make our behavior conform with a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world. We are now the architect of the universe. We're responsible for nothing outside of ourselves. Ideological social justice views humans and creatures as creatures whose identity is wholly determined by their group affiliations, especially the group affiliation of skin color, sexual preference, and gender identity. In this worldview, humans lose their identity as individuals. I believe this could be the most glaring problem of social justice. We're nothing more than, than a social construct. Based on this doctrine, One's own ideas or experiences are irrelevant. This is how a white male can be a racist even if he harbors no racist ideologies or tendencies. Again, this is diametrically opposed to a biblical worldview. According to the Word of God, we are image bearers. As such, we are designed for cultural interaction with groups which do shape us, but, but these groups don't define us. We can look at it like this. Jesus did not die for white Americans or tan Mexicans or black-skinned Africans. Jesus died for me, for you, for each and every individual, not their group association. Additionally, we can say the church shapes us. It helps us form our opinions about issues, but it doesn't define who we are. Ideological social justice is also wrong-headed when it addresses the fundamental problem of human beings. According to these warriors, humanity's biggest problem is oppression. Let's be candid. Oppression is a problem. If it wasn't a problem, the scriptures wouldn't deal with it as much as they do. One particular leading thinker and writer for social justice, a man by the name of Tanishi Coates, went so far as to specify the fundamental problem of humanity as whiteness. Another, a man by the name of Tim Gill, sources the fundamental problem 
was humanity is the Judeo-Christian sexual ethic. To Mr. Gill, who lives in Silicon Valley, he, uh, he says those who describe to this uh, subscribe to this ethic are wicked. Still, another source is the major issue of evil in society with masculinity. He dubs this evil the patriarchy. To him, manliness is an extremely toxic oppression. We talked a little bit last night about intersectionality. These ideas give rise to this concept. Intersectionality occurs when someone belongs to more than one oppressed group. A homosexual man that is also black and poor is oppressed then in three ways. These ideologies and patterns of thought are anti-biblical. Not unbiblical. Anti-biblical. This divisive way of thinking is what allowed Nazi Germany to slaughter millions of Jews because of their lineage. Or the Khmer Rouge to kill people just because they wore glasses. The follower of Jesus Christ cannot, cannot subscribe to such a thought pattern. The Apostle Paul addressed what's wrong with humanity. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 31, we find that, God, that Paul gives an overview of what was wrong with humanity. He says they did not honor God. They did not give thanks to God. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols. And they did not see fit to acknowledge God. In short, mankind rebelled against God. Mankind sinned. Thus the line separating good and evil doesn't pass through government. Doesn't pass through social class or political parties. Skin colors or gender identification. But through each and every individual. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The problem is sin, not skin color, not gender, not political alliance, not class. In the Lord's church, we're responsible to be the light of the world. A mirror reflecting the holiness and glory of God. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. This includes our actions along the lines of justice. Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16. You're the salt of the earth, Jesus says, but if the salt loses its flavor... How shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before man that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians chapter 5, 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Proverbs 4.18 The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15 Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? So in the Lord's church, we as individuals should do all that we can to strengthen the feeble knees, to lift up the hands that hang down, following the example of the Lord Jesus. Galatians 2.10 Paul recalls that the elders of Jerusalem exhorted them to remember the poor. The very thing which I also was eager to do, he says. Again, James 2, verse 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed, 
For the body, what does it profit? Hebrews 12, 12 through 14. I used to think 14 stood alone, but it's tied together with this. Strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Psalm 89, 14, David echoes what he said earlier. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. It has been said that you can't separate justice and mercy, and that's certainly true to an extent. But I think it's more correct possibly to say that <coughs> justice is mercy. Listen, I believe it was mercy that caused God to drive out the Canaanites and bring his people to Palestine. Ever J. Young in my servants the prophets says God in dispossessing the Canaanites was doing a gracious and merciful thing to the remainder of the world. The Canaanites through their abominations had themselves become abominations. If there was to be any salvation for the world, Canaan must go. The cup of their iniquity had been filled. They could no longer be permitted to exist as previously. Let no one then charge God with a lack of justice in this treatment. God's justice demands retribution. God's justice demands punishment for sin. Remember that passage from Exodus? The Lord passed through before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious and long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is God's justice at play. We don't even deserve the chance to have been born. And any sin, whatever it is, deserves eternity in hell. But God's mercy comes into play. And as the psalmist so eloquently wrote, mercy and truth has met together. Calvary stands tall as the single light in an unjust world. It should compel us to love our brother. It should compel us to love, to serve our brother, our neighbor, the poor, the widow, the orphan, whether these are strangers to us or not. Because of Calvary, because of Calvary, Christian parents should adopt orphans. Wealthy Christians should give liberally to the poor. The widow's yard, just an example, should be kept. These are practical aspects of biblical justice. Biblical justice and social justice are not compatible. Biblical justice does commend us to make reparations. I'm sorry. Biblical justice does not commend us to make reparations to people of a different skin color. Does not commend us to make allowances for the gender confused. Biblical justice does commend us to not oppress the poor. Are afflicted in any way. It does commend us to care for the needy in whatever form we may find them. I didn't know Glenn was going to give a list. I, here's a list of most of the books and articles that I used. Uh, there was no way to add uh, all the YouTube videos that I watched and different, different takes and things like that. I would say that I agree with his take on uh, the book White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. It's, I bought it. 
you can slap me later. <laughs> uh, but uh, I wanted to read what the other side was saying. I also bought Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. I would lump them together. And uh, I have borrowed or rented the book, uh, the textbook, Readings for Diversity and Social Justice, uh, the third edition that was published in 2013. There are several editions. It's one of the premier social justice textbooks that is used in our colleges and universities today. I would highly commend you going online and finding number 14, Racism Coming to Grips with the Problem. Brother Boniface writing uh, in the spring of 2008 Christian Expositor. It's one of the best articles that I read in all of my research. I'm, I'm finished.